This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 23 if Morris Townsend was not to be included in this journey, no more was Mrs. Pennyman, who would have been thankful for an invitation, but who, to do her justice, bore her disappointment in a perfectly ladylike manner. "'I should enjoy seeing the works of Raphael and the ruins—the ruins of the Pantheon,' she said to Mrs. Almond. "'But on the other hand, I shall not be sorry to be alone, and at peace for the next few months in Washington Square.' I want rest. I have been through so much in the last four months. Mrs. Almond thought it rather cruel that her brother should not take poor Lavinia abroad, but she easily understood that, if the purpose of his expedition was to make Catherine forget her lover, it was not in his interest to give his daughter this young man's best friend as a companion. If Lavinia had not been so foolish, she might visit the ruins of the Pantheon, she said to herself and she continued to regret her sister's folly, even though the latter assured her that she had often heard the relics in question most satisfactorily described by Mr. Pennyman. Mrs. Pennyman was perfectly aware that her brother's motive in undertaking a foreign tour was to lay a trap for Catherine's constancy, and she imparted this conviction very frankly to her niece. "'He thinks it will make you forget Morris,' she said." She always called the young man Morris now. "'Out of sight, out of mind, you know. He thinks that all the things you will see over there will drive him out of your thoughts.' Catherine looked greatly alarmed. "'If he thinks that, I ought to tell him beforehand.' Mrs. Pennyman shook her head. "'Tell him afterward, my dear, after he has had all the trouble and expense. That's the way to serve him.' and she added, in a softer key, that it must be delightful to think of those who love us among the ruins of the Pantheon. Her father's displeasure had cost the girl, as we know, a great deal of deep, welling sorrow, sorrow of the purest and most generous kind, without a touch of resentment or rancor. But for the first time, after he had dismissed with such contemptuous brevity her apology for being a charge upon him, there was a spark of anger in her grief. She had felt his contempt, and it had scorched her. That speech about her bad taste had made her ears burn for three days. During this period she was less considerate. She had an idea, a rather vague one, but it was agreeable to her sense of injury that now she was absolved from penitence, and might do what she chose. She chose to write to Morris Townsend, to meet her in the square, and to take her to walk about the town. If she were going to Europe out of respect to her father, she might at least give herself this satisfaction. She felt in every way, at present, more free and more resolute. There was a force that urged her. Now, at last, completely and unreservedly, her passion possessed her. Morris met her at last, and they took a long walk. She told him immediately what had happened, that her father wished to take her away. It would be for six months, to Europe. She would do absolutely what Morris should think best. 
She hoped inexpressibly that he would think it best she should stay at home. It was some time before he said what he thought. He asked, as they walked along, a great many questions. There was one that especially struck her. It seemed so incongruous. "'Should you like to see all those celebrated things over there?' "'Oh, no, Morris,' said Catherine, quite deprecatingly. "'Gracious heavens! What a dull woman!' Morris exclaimed to himself. "'He thinks I will forget you,' said Catherine, "'that all these things will drive you out of my mind.' "'Well, my dear, perhaps they will.' "'Please don't say that,' Catherine answered gently, as they walked along. "'Poor father will be disappointed.' Morris gave a little laugh. "'Yes, I verily believe that your poor father will be disappointed. But you will have seen Europe,' he added humorously. "'What a taken!' "'I don't care for seeing Europe,' Catherine said. "'You ought to care, my dear, and it may mollify your father.' Catherine, conscious of her obstinacy, expected little of this, and could not rid herself of the idea that in going abroad and yet remaining firm she should play her father a trick. "'Don't you think it would be a kind of deception?' she asked. "'Doesn't he want to deceive you?' cried Morris. "'It will serve him right. I really think you had better go.' "'And not be married for so long?' be married when you come back. You can buy your wedding clothes in Paris. And then Morris, with great kindness of tone, explained his view of the matter. It would be a good thing that she should go. It would put them completely in the right. It would show they were reasonable and willing to wait. Once they were so sure of each other, they could afford to wait. What had they to fear? If there was a particle of chance that her father would be favourably affected by her going, that ought to settle it. For, after all, Morris was very unwilling to be the cause of her being disinherited. It was not for himself, it was for her, and for her children. He was willing to wait for her. It would be hard, but he could do it. And over there, among beautiful scenes and noble monuments, perhaps the old gentleman would be softened. Such things were supposed to exert a humanizing influence. He might be touched by her gentleness, her patience, her willingness to make any sacrifice but that one. And if she should appeal to him some day in some celebrated spot, in Italy, say, in the evening, in Venice, in a gondola, by moonlight, if she should be a little clever about it and touch the right cord perhaps he would fold her in his arms and tell her that he forgave her catherine was immensely struck with this conception of the affair which seemed eminently worthy of her lover's brilliant intellect though she viewed it askance in so far as it depended upon her own powers of execution the idea of being clever in a gondola by moonlight appeared to her to involve elements of which her grasp was not active. But it was settled between them that she should tell her father that she was ready to follow him obediently anywhere, making the mental reservation that she loved Morris Townsend more than ever. She informed the doctor she was ready to embark, and he made rapid arrangements for this event. Catherine had many farewells to make, but only with two of them are we actively concerned. Mrs. Pennyman took a discriminating view of her niece's journey. It seemed to her very proper that Mr. Townsend's destined bride should wish 
to embellish her mind by a foreign tour. "'You leave him in good hands,' she said, pressing her lips to Catherine's forehead. She was very fond of kissing people's foreheads. It was an involuntary expression of sympathy with the intellectual part. "'I shall see him often. I shall feel like one of the vestals of old, tending the sacred flame.' "'You behave beautifully about not going with us,' Catherine answered, not presuming to examine this analogy. "'It is my pride that keeps me up,' said Mrs. Pennyman, tapping the body of her dress, which always gave forth a sort of metallic ring. Catherine's parting with her lover was short, and few words were exchanged. "'Shall I find you just the same when I come back?' she asked, though the question was not the fruit of scepticism. "'The same. Only more so.' said Morris, smiling. It does not enter into our scheme to narrate in detail Dr. Sloper's proceedings in the Eastern Hemisphere. He made the grand tour of Europe, travelled in considerable splendour, and, as was to have been expected in a man of his high cultivation, found so much in art and antiquity to interest him that he remained abroad not for six months, but for twelve Mrs. Pennyman, in Washington Square, accommodated herself to his absence. She enjoyed her uncontested dominion in the empty house, and flattered herself that she made it more attractive to their friends than when her brother was at home. To Morris Townsend, at least, it would have appeared that she made it singularly attractive. He was altogether her most frequent visitor, and Mrs. Pennyman was very fond of asking him to tea. He had his chair— a very easy one at the fireside in the back parlour when the great mahogany sliding doors with silver knobs and hinges which divided this apartment from its more formal neighbour were closed and he used to smoke cigars in the doctor's study where he often spent an hour in turning over the curious collections of its absent proprietor he thought Mrs. Pennyman a goose, as we know, but he was no goose himself, and, as a young man of luxurious tastes and scanty resources, he found the house a perfect castle of indolence. It became for him a club with a single member. Mrs. Pennyman saw much less of her sister than while the doctor was at home, for Mrs. Almond had felt moved to tell her that she disapproved of her relations with Mr. Townsend. She had no business to be so friendly to a young man of whom their brother thought so meanly, and Mrs. Almond was surprised at her levity in foisting a most deplorable engagement upon Catherine. "'Deplorable!' cried Lavinia. "'He will make her a lovely husband!' "'I don't believe in lovely husbands,' said Mrs. Almond. "'I only believe in good ones.' "'If he marries her, and she comes into Austin's money, they may get on.' He will be an idle, amiable, selfish, and doubtless tolerably good-natured fellow. But if she doesn't get the money, and he finds himself tied to her, heaven have mercy on her. He will have none. He will hate her for his disappointment and take his revenge. He will be pitiless and cruel. Woe betide poor Catherine. I recommend you talk a little with his sister. It's a pity Catherine can't marry her. 
Mrs. Pennyman had no appetite whatever for conversation with Mrs. Montgomery, whose acquaintance she made no trouble to cultivate, and the effect of this alarming forecast of her niece's destiny was to make her think it indeed a thousand pities that Mr. Townsend's generous nature should be embittered. Bright enjoyment was his natural element, and how could he be comfortable if there should prove to be nothing to enjoy? It became a fixed idea with Mrs. Pennyman that he should yet enjoy her brother's fortune, on which she had acuteness enough to perceive that her own claim was small. "'If he doesn't leave it to Catherine, it certainly won't be to leave it to me,' she said. End of chapter 23 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 24 The doctor, during the six months he was abroad, never spoke to his daughter of their difference, partly on system and partly because he had a great many other things to think about. It was idle to attempt to ascertain the state of her affections without direct inquiry, because if she had not had an expressive manner among the familiar influences of home, she failed to gather animation from the mountains of Switzerland or the monuments of Italy. She was always her father's docile and reasonable associate, going through her sightseeing in deferential silence, never complaining of fatigue, always ready to start at the hour he had appointed overnight, making no foolish criticisms, and indulging in no refinements of appreciation. "'She is about as intelligent as the bundle of shawls,' the doctor said, her main superiority being that, while the bundle of shawls sometimes got lost or tumbled out of the carriage, Catherine was always at her post and had a firm and ample seat. But her father had expected this, and he was not constrained to set down her intellectual limitations as a tourist to sentimental depression. She had completely divested herself of the characteristics of a victim, and during the whole time that they were abroad she never uttered an audible sigh. He supposed she was in correspondence with Morris Townsend, but he held his peace about it, for he never saw the young man's letters, and Catherine's own missives were always given to the courier to post. She heard from her lover with considerable regularity, but his letters came enclosed in Mrs. Pennyman's, so that, whenever the doctor handed her a packet addressed in his sister's hand, he was an involuntary instrument of the passion he condemned. Catherine made this reflection, and six months earlier she would have felt bound to give him warning, but now she deemed herself absolved. There was a sore spot in her heart that his own words had made, when once she spoke to him as she thought honour prompted. She would try and please him as far as she could, but she would never speak that way again. She read her lover's letters in secret. 
One day, at the end of the summer, the two travellers found themselves in a lonely valley of the Alps. They were crossing one of the passes, and on the long ascent they had got out of the carriage and had wandered much in advance. After a while the doctor descried a footpath which, leading through a traverse valley, would bring them out, as he justly supposed, at a much higher point of the ascent. They followed this devious way, and finally lost the path. The valley proved very wild and rough, and their walk became rather a scramble. They were good walkers, however, and they took their adventure easily. From time to time they stopped, that Catherine might rest, and then she sat upon a stone and looked about her at the hard-featured rocks and the glowing sky. It was late in the afternoon, in the last of August. Night was coming on, and as they had reached a great elevation, the air was cold and sharp. In the west there was a great suffusion of cold red light, which made the sides of the little valley look only the more rugged and dusky. During one of their pauses her father left her and wandered away to some high place at a distance to get a view. He was out of sight. She sat there in the lone in the stillness, which was just touched by the vague murmur somewhere of a mountain brook. She thought of Morris Townsend, and the place was so desolate and lonely that he seemed very far away. Her father remained absent a long time. She began to wonder what had become of him. But at last he reappeared, coming toward her in the clear twilight, and she got up to go. He made no motion to proceed, however, but came close to her as if he had something to say. He stopped in front of her, and took looking at her with eyes that had kept the light of the flushing snow summits on which they had just been fixed. Then abruptly, in a low tone, he asked her an unexpected question. "'Have you given him up?' The question was unexpected, but Catherine was only superficially unprepared. "'No, father,' she answered. He looked at her again for some moments without speaking. "'Does he write to you?' he asked. "'Yes, about twice a month.' The doctor looked up and down the valley, swinging his stick. Then he said to her in the same low tone, "'I am very angry.' She wondered what he meant, whether he wished to frighten her. If he did, the place was well chosen. This hard, melancholy dell, abandoned by the summer light, made her feel her loneliness. She looked around her, and her heart grew cold. For a moment her fear was great, but she could think of nothing to say, save to murmur gently, "'I am sorry.' "'You try my patience,' her father went on, "'and you ought to know what I am. I am not a very good man, though I am very smooth externally. At bottom I am very passionate, and I assure you I can be very hard.' She could not think why he told her these things. Had he brought her there on purpose, and was it part of a plan? What was the plan? Catherine asked herself. Was it to startle her suddenly into a retraction, to take an advantage of her by dread? Dread of what? The place was ugly and lonely, but the place could do her no harm. There was a kind of still intensity about her father which made him dangerous but Catherine hardly went so far as to say to herself that it might be part of his plan to fasten his hand, the neat, 
fine, supple hand of a distinguished physician in her throat. Nevertheless, she receded a step. "'I am sure you can be anything you please,' she said, and it was her simple belief. "'I am very angry,' he replied more sharply. "'Why has it taken you so suddenly?' It has not taken me suddenly. I have been raging inwardly for the last six months. But just now this seems a good place to flare out. It's so quiet, and we are alone. Yes, it is very quiet, said Catherine, vaguely looking about her. Won't you come back to the carriage? In a moment. Do you mean that in all this time you have not yielded an inch? I would if I could, father, but I can't. The doctor looked around him, too. Should you like to be left in such a place as this to starve? What do you mean? cried the girl. That will be your fate. That's how he will leave you. He would not touch her, but he had touched Morris. The warmth came back to her heart. That is not true, father, she broke out, and you ought not to say it. It is not right, and it's not true. He shook his head slowly. No, it's not right, because you won't believe it, but it is true. Come back to the carriage. He turned away, and she followed him. He went faster, and was presently much in advance, but from time to time he stopped, without turning round, to let her keep up with him, and she made her way forward with difficulty her heart beating with the excitement of having for the first time spoken to him in violence. By this time it had grown almost dark, and she ended by losing sight of him. But she kept her course, and after a little, the valley, making a sudden turn, she gained the road where the carriage stood waiting. In it sat her father, rigid and silent. In silence, too, she took her place beside him. It seemed to her, later in looking back upon all this, that for days afterward not a word had been exchanged between them. The scene had been a strange one, but it had not permanently affected her feeling toward her father, for it was natural, after all, that he should occasionally make a scene of some kind, and he had let her alone for six months. The strangest part of it was that he had said he was not a good man. Catherine wondered a good deal what he had meant by that. The statement failed to appeal to her credence, and it was not grateful to any resentment that she entertained. Even in the utmost bitterness that she might feel, it would give her no satisfaction to think him less complete. Such a saying as that was a part of his great subtlety. Men so clever as he might say anything and mean anything. As to his being hard, that, surely, in a man, was a virtue. He let her alone for six months more, six months during which she accommodated herself without a protest to the extension of their tour. But he spoke again at the end of this time. It was at the very last, the night before they embarked for New York, in the hotel at Liverpool. They had been dining together in a great, dim, musty sitting-room, and then the cloth had been removed, and the doctor walked slowly up and down. Catherine, at last, took her candle to go to bed, but her father motioned her to stay. "'What do you mean to do when you get home?' he asked, while she stood there with her candle in her hand. "'Do you mean about Mr. Townsend?' 
about Mr. Townsend. We shall probably marry. The doctor took several turns again as she waited. Do you hear from him as much as ever? Yes, twice a month, said Catherine promptly. And does he always talk about marriage? Oh, yes. That is, he talks about other things, too. But he always says something about that. I am glad to hear he varies his subjects. His letters might otherwise be monotonous. He writes beautifully, said Catherine, who was very glad of a chance to say it. They always write beautifully. However, in a given case, that doesn't diminish the merit. So, as soon as you arrive, you are going off with him? This seemed a rather gross way of putting it, and something that there was of dignity in Catherine resented it. I cannot tell you till we arrive, she said. That's reasonable enough, her father answered. That's all I ask of you, that you do tell me, that you give me definite notice. When a poor man is to lose his only child, he likes to have an inkling of it beforehand. Oh, father, you will not lose me, Catherine said, spilling her candle wax. Three days before will do. He went on. If you are in a position to be positive, then. He ought to be very thankful to me, do you know? I have done a mighty good thing for him in taking you abroad. Your value is twice as great with all the knowledge and taste that you have acquired. A year ago you were perhaps a little limited, a little rustic, but now you have seen everything and appreciated everything, and you will be a most entertaining companion. We have fattened the sheep for him before he kills it. Catherine turned away and stood staring at the blank door. Go to bed, said her father, and as we don't go abroad till noon, you may sleep late. We shall probably have a most uncomfortable voyage. End of chapter twenty four. This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square. A novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Twenty Five. The voyage was indeed uncomfortable, and Catherine, on arriving in New York, had not the compensation of going off, in her father's phrase, with Morris Townsend. She saw him, however, the day after she landed, and in the meantime he formed a natural subject of conversation between our heroine and her aunt Lavinia, with whom, the night she disembarked, the girl was closeted for a long time before either lady retired to rest. "'I have seen a great deal of him,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'He is not very easy to know. I suppose you think you know him. But you don't, my dear. You will some day.' but it will only be after you have lived with him. I may almost say I have lived with him, 
Mrs. Pennyman proceeded, while Catherine stared. "'I think I know him now. I have had such remarkable opportunities. You will have the same. Or, rather, you will have better.' and Aunt Lavinia smiled. "'Then you will see what I mean. It's a wonderful character, full of passion and energy, and just as true.' Catherine listened with a mixture of interest and apprehension. Aunt Lavinia was intensely sympathetic, and Catherine, for the past year, while she wandered through foreign galleries and churches, and rolled over the smoothness of posting-roads, nursing the thoughts that never passed her lips, had often longed for the company of some intelligent person of her own sex. To tell her story to some kind woman, at moments it seemed to her that this would give her comfort, and she had more than once been on the point of taking the landlady, or the nice young person from the dressmakers, into her confidence. If a woman had been near her, she would on certain occasions have treated such a companion to a fit of weeping, and she had an apprehension that, on her return, this would form her response to Aunt Lavinia's first embrace. In fact, however, the two ladies met, in Washington Square, without tears, and when they found themselves alone together, a certain dryness fell upon the girl's emotion. It came over her with a greater force that Mrs. Pennyman had enjoyed a whole year of her lover's society, and it was not a pleasure to her to hear her aunt explain and interpret the young man, speaking of him as if her own knowledge of him were supreme. It was not that Catherine was jealous, but her sense of Mrs. Pennyman's innocent fallacy, which had lain dormant, began to haunt her again, and she was glad that she was safely at home. With this, however, it was a blessing to be able to talk of Morris, to sound his name, to be with a person who was not unjust to him. "'You have been very kind to him,' said Catherine. "'He has written me that often. "'I shall never forget that, Aunt Lavinia.' "'I have done what I could. "'It has been very little. "'To let him come and talk to me "'and give him his cup of tea, that was all. "'Your Aunt Almond thought it was too much "'and used to scold me terribly. "'But she promised me, at least, not to betray me.' "'To betray you?' not to tell your father. He used to sit in your father's study," said Mrs. Pennyman, with a little laugh. Catherine was silent a moment. This idea was disagreeable to her, and she was reminded again with pain of her aunt's secretive habits. Morris, the reader may be informed, had had the tact not to tell her that he sat in her father's study. He had known her but for a few months, and her aunt had known her for fifteen years and yet he would not have made the mistake of thinking that Catherine would see the joke of the thing. "'I am sorry you made him go into father's room,' she said, after a while. "'I didn't send him. He went himself. He liked to look at the books and all those things in the glass cases. He knows all about them. He knows all about everything.' Catherine was silent again. Then, "'I wish he had found some employment,' she said. "'He has found some employment. It's beautiful news, and he told me to tell you as soon as you arrived. He has gone into partnership with a commission merchant. It was all settled quite suddenly a week ago.' This seemed to Catherine indeed beautiful news, and it had a fine, prosperous air. 
"'Oh, I am so glad,' she said, and now for a moment she was disposed to throw herself on Aunt Lavinia's neck. "'It's much better than being under someone, and he has never been used to that,' Mrs. Pennyman went on. "'He is just as good as his partner. They are perfectly equal. You see how right he was to wait? I should like to know what your father can say now.' They have got an office in Duane Street, with little printed cards. He brought me one to show me. I have got it in my room, and you shall see it to-morrow. That's what he said to me the last time he was here. You see how right I was to wait? He has got other people under him instead of being a subordinate. He would never be a subordinate. I have often told him I could never think of him in that way. Catherine assented to this proposition, and was very happy to know that Morris was his own master, but she was deprived of the satisfaction of thinking that she might communicate this news in triumph to her father. Her father would care equally little whether Morris were established in business or transported for life. Her trunks had been brought into her room, and further reference to her lover was for a short time suspended, while she opened them and displayed to her aunt some of the spoils of foreign travel. These were rich and abundant, and Catherine had brought home a present to every one, to every one save Morris, to whom she brought simply her undiverted heart. To Mrs. Pennyman she had been lavishly generous, and Aunt Lavinia spent half an hour in unfolding and folding again with little ejaculations of gratitude and taste. She marched about for some time in a splendid cashmere shawl, which Catherine had begged her to accept, settling it on her shoulders and twisting down her head to see how low the point descended behind. "'I shall regard it only as a loan,' she said. I will leave it to you again when I die, or rather, she added, kissing her niece again, I will leave it to your first-born little girl. And draped in her shawl, she stood there smiling. You had better wait till she comes, said Catherine. I don't like the way you say that, Mrs. Pennyman rejoined in a moment. Catherine, are you changed? No, I am the same. You have not swerved the line? "'I am exactly the same,' Catherine repeated, wishing her aunt were a little less sympathetic. "'Well, I am glad,' said Mrs. Pennyman. And Mrs. Pennyman surveyed her cashmere in the glass. Then, "'How is your father?' she asked in a moment with her eyes on her niece. "'Your letters were so meagre, I could never tell.' "'Father is very well.' "'Oh, you know what I mean,' said Mrs. Pennyman, with a dignity to which the cashmere gave a richer effect. "'Is he still implacable?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Quite unchanged?' "'He is, if possible, more firm.' Mrs. Pennyman took off her great shawl and slowly folded it up. "'That is very bad. You had no success in your little project.' "'What little project?' "'Morris told me all about it. "'The idea of turning the tables on him in Europe, "'of watching him when he was agreeably impressed by some celebrated sight. "'He pretends to be so artistic, you know. "'And then just pleading with him and bringing him round. "'I never tried it. "'It was Morris's idea, but if he had been with us in Europe, "'he would have seen that father was never impressed in that way. "'He is artistic, tremendously artistic.' 
but the more celebrated places we visited and the more he admired them the less use it would have been to plead with him they seemed only to make him more determined more terrible said poor catherine i shall never bring him round and i expect nothing now well i must say mrs pennyman answered i never supposed you were going to give it up i have given it up i don't care now you have grown very brave said mrs pennyman with a short laugh i didn't advise you to sacrifice your property yes i am braver than i was you asked me if i had changed i have changed in that way oh the girl went on i have changed very much and it isn't my property if he doesn't care for it why should i mrs pennyman hesitated perhaps he does care for it he cares for it for my sake because he doesn't want to injure me but he will know and he knows already how little he need be afraid about that besides said catherine i've got plenty of money of my own we shall be very well off and now hasn't he got his business i am delighted about that business she went on talking showing a good deal of excitement as she proceeded her aunt had never seen her with just this manner and mrs pennyman observing her set it down to foreign travel which had made her more positive more mature she thought also that catherine had improved in appearance she looked rather handsome mrs pennyman wondered whether morris townsend would be struck with that while she was engaged in this speculation catherine broke out with a certain sharpness why are you so contradictory aunt pennyman you seem to think one thing at one time and another at another a year ago before you went away you wished me not to mind about displeasing father and now you seem to recommend me to take another line you change about so this attack was unexpected for Mrs. Pennyman was not used in any discussion to seeing the war carried into her own country, possibly because the enemy generally had doubts of finding subsistence there. To her own consciousness, the flowery fields of her reason had rarely been ravaged by a hostile force. It was perhaps on this account that in defending them she was majestic rather than agile i don't know what you accuse me of same of being too deeply interested in your happiness it is the first time i have been told i am capricious that fault is not what i am usually reproached with you were angry last year that i wouldn't marry immediately and now you talk about my winning my father over you told me it would serve him right if he should take me to europe for nothing well he has taken me for nothing and you ought to be satisfied nothing has changed nothing but my feeling about father i don't mind nearly so much now i have been as good as i could but he doesn't care now i don't care either i don't know whether i have grown bad perhaps i have but i don't care for that i have come home to be married that's all i know that ought to please you unless you have taken up some new idea you are so strange you may do as you please but you must never speak to me again about pleading with father i shall never plead with him for anything that is all over he has put me off and i am come home to be married 
This was a more authoritative speech than she had ever heard on her niece's lips, and Mrs. Pennyman was proportionately startled. She was indeed a little awestruck, and the force of the girl's emotion and resolution left her nothing to reply. She was easily frightened, and she always carried off her discomfiture by a concession, a concession which was often accompanied, as in the present case, by a little nervous laugh. End of chapter 25 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www. Dot LibriVox dot org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. Chapter Twenty Six. If she had disturbed her niece's temper, she began from this moment forward to talk a good deal about Catherine's temper, an article which up to that time had never been mentioned in connection with our heroine. Catherine had opportunity on the morrow to recover her serenity. Mrs. Pennyman had given her a message from Morris Townsend to the effect that he would come and welcome her home on the day after her arrival. He came in the afternoon, but as may be imagined, he was not on this occasion made free of Dr. Sloper's study. He had been coming and going for the past year so comfortably and irresponsibly that he had a certain sense of being wronged by finding himself reminded that he must now limit his horizon to the front parlour, which was Catherine's particular province. "'I am very glad you have come back,' he said. "'It makes me very happy to see you again.' and he looked at her smiling from head to foot, though it did not appear afterward that he agreed with Mrs. Pennyman, who, womanlike, went more into details, in thinking her embellished. To Catherine he appeared resplendent. It was some time before she could believe again that this beautiful young man was her own exclusive property. They had a great deal of characteristic lover's talk, a soft exchange of inquiries and assurances. In these matters Morris had an excellent grace, which flung a picturesque interest even over the account of his debut in the commission business, a subject as to which his companion earnestly questioned him. From time to time he got up from the sofa where they sat together and walked about the room, after which he came back, smiling and passing his hand through his hair. He was unquiet as was natural in a young man who has just been reunited with a long-absent mistress, and Catherine made the reflection that she had never seen him so excited. It gave her pleasure, somehow, to note this fact. He asked her questions about her travels, to some of which she was unable to reply, for she had forgotten the names of places and the order of her father's journey but for the moment she was so happy, so lifted up by the belief that her troubles at last were over, that she forgot to be ashamed of her meagre answers. It seemed to her now that she could marry him without the remnant of a scruple, or a single tremor save those that belonged to joy. 
Without waiting for him to ask, she told him that her father had come back in exactly the same state of mind, that he had not yielded an inch. "'We must not expect it now,' she said, "'and we must do without it.' Morris sat looking and smiling. "'My poor, dear girl!' he exclaimed. "'You mustn't pity me,' said Catherine. "'I don't mind it now. I am used to it.' Morris continued to smile, and then he got up and walked about again. "'You would better let me try him.' "'Try to bring him over?' "'You would only make him worse,' Catherine answered resolutely. "'You say that because I managed it so badly before. But I should manage it differently now. I am much wiser. I have had a year to think of it. I have more tact.' "'Is that what you've been thinking of for a year?' much of the time you see the idea sticks in my crop i don't like to be beaten how are you beaten if we marry of course i'm not beaten on the main issue but i am don't you see on all the rest of it on the question of my reputation of my relations with your father of my relations with my own children if we should have any we shall have enough for our children we shall have enough for everything don't you expect to succeed in business brilliantly and we shall certainly be very comfortable but it isn't of the mere material comfort i speak it is of the moral comfort said morris of the intellectual satisfaction i have great moral comfort now catherine declared very simply of course you have but with me it is different I have staked my pride on proving to your father that he is wrong, and now that I am at the head of a flourishing business, I can deal with him as an equal. I have a capital plan. Do let me go at him." He stood before her with his bright face, his gaunty air, his hands in his pocket, and she got up, with her eyes resting on him. "'Please don't, Morris, please don't,' she said and there was a certain mild, sad firmness in her tone, which he heard for the first time. "'We must ask no favours of him. We must ask nothing more. He won't relent, and nothing good will come of it. I know it now. I have a very good reason.' "'And pray, what is your reason?' She hesitated to bring it out, but at last it came. "'He is not very fond of me.' "'Oh, bother!' cried Morris angrily. I wouldn't say such a thing without being sure. I saw it, I felt it, in England, just before he came away. He talked to me one night, the last night, and then it came over me. You can tell when a person feels that way. I wouldn't accuse him if he hadn't made me feel that way. I don't accuse him. I just tell you that that's how it is. He can't help it. We can't govern our affections. Do I govern mine? Mightn't he say that to me? It's because he is so fond of my mother, whom we lost so long ago. She was beautiful and very, very brilliant. He is always thinking of her. I am not at all like her. Aunt Pennyman has told me that. Of course, it isn't my fault, but neither is it his fault. All I mean is, it's true, and it's a stronger reason for his never being reconciled than simply his dislike for you." "'Simply?' cried Morris, with a laugh. "'I am much obliged for that.' 
I don't mind about his disliking you now. I mind everything less. I feel differently. I feel separated from my father. Upon my word, said Morris, you are a queer family. Don't say that. Don't say anything unkind, the girl entreated. You must be very kind to me now, because, Morris, because— and she hesitated a moment, because I have done a great deal for you. Oh, I know that, my dear. She had spoken up to this moment without vehemence or outward a sign of emotion, gently, reasonably, only trying to explain. But her emotion had been ineffectually smothered, and it betrayed itself at last in the trembling of her voice. It is a great thing to be separated like that from your father, when you have worshipped him before. It has made me very unhappy, or it would have made me so if I didn't love you. You can tell when a person speaks to you as if—as if—as if what? As if they despise you, said Catherine passionately. He spoke that way the night before we sailed. It wasn't much, but it was enough, and I thought of it on the voyage all the time. Then I made up my mind. I will never ask him for anything again, or expect anything from him. It would not be natural now. We must be very happy together, and we must not seem to depend upon his forgiveness. And, Morris, Morris, you must never despise me. This was an easy promise to make, and Morris made it with fine effect. But for the moment he undertook nothing more onerous. End of chapter 26 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James, read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 27 the doctor, of course, on his return, had a good deal of talk with his sisters. He was at no great pains to narrate his travels or to communicate his impressions of distant lands to Mrs. Pennyman, upon whom he contented himself with bestowing a memento of his enviable experience in the shape of a velvet gown. He now conversed with her at some length about matters nearer home, and lost no time in assuring her that he was still an inflexible father. I have no doubt you have seen a great deal of Mr. Townsend, and done your best to console him for Catherine's absence, he said. I don't ask you, and you needn't deny it. I wouldn't put the question to you for the world, and expose you to the inconvenience of having to, uh, excogitate an answer. No one has betrayed you, and there has been no spy upon your proceedings. Elizabeth has told no tales, and has never mentioned you except to praise your good looks and good spirits. 
The thing is simply an inference of my own, an induction, as the philosophers say. It seems to me likely that you have offered an asylum to an interesting sufferer. Mr. Townsend has been a good deal in the house. There is something in the house that tells me so. We doctors, you know, end by acquiring fine perceptions, and it is impressed upon my sensorium that he has sat in these chairs in a very easy attitude and warmed himself at the fire. I don't grudge him the comfort of it. It is the only one he will ever enjoy at my expense. It seems likely, indeed, that I shall be able to economize at his own. I don't know what you may have said to him, or what you may say hereafter, but I should like you to know that if you have encouraged him to believe that he will gain anything by hanging on, or that I have budged a hair-breath from the position I took up a year ago, you have played him a trick for which he may exact reparation. I am not sure that he may not bring a suit against you. Of course, you have done it conscientiously. You may yourself believe that I can be tired out. This is the most baseless hallucination that ever visited the brain of a genial optimist. I am not in the least tired. I am as fresh as when I started. I am good for fifty years yet. Catherine appears not to have budged an inch either. She is equally fresh. So we are about where we were before. This, however, you know as well as I— what I wish is simply to give you notice of my own state of mind. Take it to heart, dear Lavinia. Beware of the just resentment of a deluded fortune-teller. I can't say I expected it, said Aunt Pennyman, and I had a sort of foolish hope that you would come home without that odious, ironical tone with which you treat the most sacred subjects. Don't undervalue irony. It is often of great use. It is not, however, always necessary, and I will show you how gracefully I can lay it aside. I should like to know whether you think Morris Townsend will hang on. I will answer you with your own weapons, said Mrs. Pennyman. You had better wait and see. <laughs> Do you call such a speech as that one of my own weapons? I never said anything so rough. He will hang on long enough to make you very uncomfortable, then. "'My dear Lavinia,' exclaimed the doctor, "'do you call that irony? I call it pugilism.' Mrs. Pennyman, however, in spite of her pugilism, was a good deal frightened, and she took counsel of her fears. Her brother, meanwhile, took counsel, with many reservations, of Mrs. Almond, to whom he was no less generous than to Lavinia, and a good deal more communicative. "'I suppose she has had him there all the while,' he said. "'I must look into the state of my wine. You needn't mind telling me now. I have already said all I mean to say to her on the subject.' "'I believe he was in the house a good deal,' Mrs. Almond answered. But you must admit that your leaving Lavinia quite alone was a great change for her, and that it was natural she should want some society. I do admit that, and that is why I shall make no row about the wine. I shall set it down as compensation to Lavinia. She is capable of telling me that she drank it all herself. Think of the inconceivable bad taste in the circumstances of that fellow making free with the house or coming there at all. If that doesn't describe him, he is indescribable. 
His plan is to get what he can. Lavinia will have supported him for a year, said Mrs. Almond. It's so much gained. She will have to support him for the rest of his life, then, cried the doctor, but without wine, as they say at the tables haute. Catherine tells me he has set up a business and is making a great deal of money. The doctor stared. She has not told me that. And Lavinia didn't dine. Ah, he cried, Catherine has given me up. Not that it matters, for all that business amounts to. She has not given up Mr. Townsend, said Mrs. Almond. I saw that in the first half-minute. She has come home exactly the same. Exactly the same, not a grain more intelligent. She didn't notice a stick or a stone all the while we were away, not a picture nor a view, nor a statue or a cathedral. How could she notice? She had other things to think of. They are never for an instant out of her mind. She touches me very much. She would touch me if she didn't irritate me. That's the effect she has upon me now. I have tried everything upon her. I really have been quite merciless. But it is of no use whatever. She is absolutely glued. I have passed, in consequence, into the exasperated stage. At first I had a good deal of a certain genial curiosity about it. I wanted to see if she would really stick. But good Lord! Once curiosity is satisfied, I see she is capable of it. And now she can let go. She will never let go, said Mrs. Almond. Take care, or you will exasperate me too. If she doesn't let go, she will be shaken off, sent tumbling into the dust. That's a nice position for my daughter. She can't see that if you're going to be pushed, you had better jump. And then she will complain of her bruises. She will never complain, said Mrs. Almond. That I shall object to even more, but the deuce will be that I can't prevent anything. If she is to fall, said Mrs. Almond, with a gentle laugh, we must spread as many carpets as we can. And she carried out this idea by showing a great deal of motherly kindness to the girl. Mrs. Pennyman immediately wrote to Morris Townsend. The intimacy between these two was by this time consummate, but I must content myself with noting— but a few of its features. Mrs. Pennyman's own share in it was a singular sentiment, which might not have been misinterpreted, but which in itself was not discreditable to the poor lady. It was a romantic interest in this attractive and unfortunate young man, and yet it was not such an interest as Catherine might have been jealous of. Mrs. Pennyman had not an article of jealousy of her niece. For herself, she felt as if she were Morris's mother or sister, a mother or sister of an emotional temperament, and she had an absorbing desire to make him comfortable and happy. She had striven to do so during the year that her brother left her an open field, and her efforts had been attended with the success that has been pointed out. She had never had a child of her own, and Catherine, whom she had done her best to invest with the importance that would naturally belong to the youthful Pennyman, had only partly rewarded her zeal. Catherine, as an object of affection and selectitude, had never had that picturesque charm which, 
as it seemed to her, would have been a natural attribute of her own progeny. Even the maternal passion in Mrs. Pennyman would have been romantic and fastidious, and Catherine was not constituted to inspire a romantic passion. Mrs. Pennyman was as fond of her as ever, but she had grown to feel that with Catherine she lacked opportunity. Sentimentally speaking, therefore, she had, though she had not disinherited her niece, adopted Morris Townsend, who gave her opportunity in abundance. She would have been very happy to have a handsome and tyrannical son, and would have taken an extreme interest in his love affairs. This was the light in which she had come to regard Morris, who had conciliated her at first and made his impression by his delicate and calculated deference, a sort of exhibition to which Mrs. Pennyman was particularly sensitive. He had largely abated his deference afterward, for he had economized his resources, but the impression was made, and the young man's very brutality came to have a sort of filial value. If Mrs. Pennyman had had a son, she would probably have been afraid of him, and at this stage of our narrative she was certainly afraid of Morris Townsend. This was one of the results of his domestication in Washington Square. He took his ease with her, as, for that matter, he would certainly have done with his own mother. End of chapter 27 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy, in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 28 The letter was a word of warning. It informed him that the doctor had come home more impracticable than ever. She might have reflected that Catherine would supply him with all the information he needed on this point, but we know that Mrs. Pennyman's reflections were rarely just and, moreover, she felt that it was not for her to depend on what Catherine might do. She was to do her duty, quite irrespective of Catherine. I have said that her young friend took his ease with her, and it is an illustration of the fact that he made no answer to her letter. He took note of it amply, but he lighted his cigar with it, and he waited, in tranquil confidence, that he should receive another. "'His state of mind really freezes my blood!' Mrs. Pennyman had written, alluding to her brother, and it would have seemed that upon this statement she could hardly improve. Nevertheless, she wrote again, expressing herself with the aid of a different figure. "'His hatred of you burns with a lurid flame, the flame that never dies,' she wrote. "'But it doesn't light up the darkness of your future. If my affection could do so, all the years of your life would be an eternal sunshine. I can extract nothing from sea.' she is so terribly secretive like her father she seems to expect to be married very soon and has evidently made preparations in europe quantities of clothes ten pairs of shoes etc 
"'My dear friend, you cannot set up in married life simply with a few pairs of shoes, can you? Tell me what you think of this. I am intensely anxious to see you. I have so much to say. I miss you dreadfully. The house seems so empty without you. What is the news downtown? Is the business extending?' that dear little business. I think it's so brave of you. Couldn't I come to your office, just for three minutes? I might pass for a customer. Is that what you call them? I might come in to buy something, some shares or some railroad things. Tell me what you think of this plan. I would carry a little rectacle, like a woman of the people. In spite of the suggestion about the rectacle, Morris appeared to think poorly of the plan, for he gave Mrs. Pennyman no encouragement whatever to visit his office, which he had already represented to her as a place particularly and unnaturally difficult to find. But as she persisted in desiring an interview, up to the last, after months of intimate colloquy, she called these meetings interviews. He agreed that they should take a walk together, and was even kind enough to leave his office for this purpose, during the hours at which business might have been supposed to be liveliest. It was no surprise to him, when they met at a street corner in a region of empty lots and undeveloped pavements, Mrs. Pennyman being attired as much as possible like a woman of the people, to find that, in spite of her urgency, what she chiefly had to convey to him was the assurance of her sympathy. Of such assurances, however, he had already a voluminous collection, and it would not have been worth his while to forsake a fruitful avocation merely to hear Mrs. Pennyman say, for the thousandth time, that she had made his cause her own. Morris had something of his own to say. It was not an easy thing to bring out, and while he turned it over, the difficulty made him acrimonious. Oh, yes, I know perfectly that he combines the properties of lump of ice and a red-hot coal, he observed. Catherine has made it thoroughly clear, and you have told me so till I am sick of it. You needn't tell me again. I am perfectly satisfied. He will never give us a penny. I regard that as mathematically proved. Mrs. Pennyman, at this point, had an inspiration. Couldn't you bring a lawsuit against him? She wondered that this simple expedient had never occurred to her before. "'I will bring a lawsuit against you,' said Morris, "'if you ask me any more such aggravating questions. A man should know when he is beaten,' he added in a moment. "'I must give her up.' Mrs. Pennyman received this declaration in silence, though it made her heart beat a little. It found her by no means unprepared for she had accustomed herself to the thought, if Morris should decidedly not be able to get her brother's money, it would not do for him to marry Catherine without it. It would not do, was a vague way of putting the thing, but Mrs. Pennyman's natural affection completed the idea, which, though it had not yet been so crudely expressed between them, as in the form that Morris had just given it, had nevertheless been implied so often in certain easy intervals of talk, as he sat stretching his legs in the doctor's well-stuffed armchairs, that she had grown first to regard it with an emotion which she flattered herself was philosophic, and then to have a secret tenderness for it. The fact that she kept her tenderness secret proves, of course, that she was ashamed of it, 
but she managed to blink her shame by reminding herself that she was, after all, the official protector of her niece's marriage. Her logic would scarcely have passed muster with a doctor. In the first place, Morris must get the money, and she would help him to it. In the second, it was plain it would never come to him, and it would be a grievous pity he should marry without it, a young man who might so easily find something better. After her brother had delivered himself, on his return from Europe, of that incisive little address that has been quoted, Morris's cause seemed so hopeless that Mrs. Pennyman fixed her attention exclusively upon the latter branch of her argument. If Morris had been her son, she would surely have sacrificed Catherine to a superior conception of his future, and to be ready to do so, as the case stood, was therefore even a finer degree of devotion. Nevertheless, it checked her breath a little to have the sacrificial knife, as it were, suddenly thrust into her hand. Morris walked along a moment, and then he repeated harshly, "'I must give her up!' "'I think I understand you,' said Mrs. Pennyman gently. "'I certainly say it distinctly enough, brutally and vulgarly enough.' He was ashamed of himself and his shame was uncomfortable, and as he was extremely intolerant of discomfort, he felt vicious and cruel. He wanted to abuse somebody, and he began, cautiously, for he was also cautious with himself. "'Couldn't you take her down a little?' he asked. "'Take her down? Prepare her, try, and ease me off.' Mrs. Pennyman stopped, looking at him very solemnly. "'My poor Morris, do you know how much she loves you?' "'No, I don't. I don't want to know. I have always tried to keep from knowing. It would be too painful.' "'She will suffer much,' said Mrs. Pennyman. "'You must console her. If you are as good a friend to me as you pretend to be, you will manage it.' Mrs. Pennyman shook her head sadly. You talk of my pretending to like you, but I can't pretend to hate you. I can only tell her I think very highly of you, and how will that console her for losing you? The doctor will help you. He will be delighted at the thing being broken off, and as he is a knowing fellow, he will invent something to comfort her. He will invent a new torture! cried Mrs. Pennyman. Heaven deliver her from her father's comfort! It will consist of his crowing over her and saying, I always told you so! Morris colored a most uncomfortable red. If you don't console her any better than you console me, you certainly won't be of much use. It's a damned disagreeable necessity. I feel it extremely, and you ought to make it easy for me. "'I will be your friend for life,' Mrs. Pennyman declared. "'Be my friend now!' and Morris walked on. She went with him. She was almost trembling. "'Should you like me to tell her?' she asked. "'You mustn't tell her, but you can—you can—' and he hesitated, trying to think of what Mrs. Pennyman could do. "'You can explain to her why it is. It's because I—' I can't bring myself to step in between her and her father, to give him the pretext he grasps at so eagerly. It's a hideous sight, for depriving her of her rights. 
Mrs. Pennyman felt with remarkable promptitude the charm of this formula. "'That's so like you,' she said. "'It's so finely felt.' Morris gave his stick an angry swing. "'Oh, damnation!' he exclaimed, perversely. Mrs. Pennyman, however, was not discouraged. "'It may turn out better than you think. Catherine is, after all, so very peculiar.' and she thought she might take it upon herself to assure him that, whatever happened, the girl would be very quiet, she wouldn't make a noise. They extended their walk, and while they proceeded, Mrs. Pennyman took upon herself other things besides, and ended by having assumed a considerable burden. Morris being ready enough, as may be imagined, to put everything off upon her. But he was not, for a single instant, the dupe of her blundering alacrity. He knew that of what she promised she was competent to perform, but an insignificant fraction, and the more she professed her willingness to serve him, the greater fool he thought her. "'What will you do if you don't marry?' she ventured to inquire in the course of this conversation. "'Something brilliant,' said Morris. "'Shouldn't you like me to do something brilliant?' The idea gave Mrs. Pennyman exceeding pleasure. "'I shall feel sadly taken in if you don't.' I shall have to, to make up for this. This isn't at all brilliant, you know." Mrs. Pennyman mused a little, as if there might be some way of making out that it was, but she had to give up the attempt, and to carry off the awkwardness of failure, she risked a new inquiry. "'Do you mean—do you mean another marriage?' Morris greeted this question with a reflection which was hardly the less impudent from being inaudible. Surely women are more crude than men. And then he answered audibly, "'Never in the world!' Mrs. Pennyman felt disappointed and snubbed, and she relieved herself in a little vaguely sarcastic cry. He was certainly perverse. "'I give her up not for another woman, but for a wider career,' Morris announced." This was very grand, but still Mrs. Pennyman, who felt that she had exposed herself, was faintly rancorous. "'Do you mean never to come to see her again?' she asked, with some sharpness. "'Oh, no, I shall come again. But what is the use of dragging it out? I have been four times since she came back, and it's terribly awkward work. I can't keep it up indefinitely. She oughtn't to expect that, you know.' A woman should never keep a man dangling," he added finally. "'Ah, but you must have your last parting,' urged his companion, in whose imagination the idea of last partings occupied a place inferior in dignity only to that of first meetings. End of chapter 28 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. Washington Square by Henry James. Read for LibriVox by Dawn Murphy in El Segundo, California. Chapter 29 
He came again, without managing the last parting, and again and again, without finding that Mrs. Pennyman had as yet done much to pave the path of his retreat with flowers. It was devilish awkward, as he said, and he felt a lively animosity for Catherine's aunt, who, as he had now quite formed the habit of saying to himself, had dragged him into the mess, and was bound in common charity to get him out. Mrs. Pennyman, to tell the truth, had in the seclusion of her own apartment, and, I may add, amid the suggestiveness of Catherine's, which wore in those days the appearance of that of a young lady laying out her trousseau. Mrs. Pennyman had measured her responsibilities, and taken fright at their magnitude. The task of preparing Catherine and easing off Morris presented difficulties which increased in the execution and even led the impulsive Lavinia to ask herself whether the modification of the young man's original project had been conceived in a happy spirit. A brilliant future, a wider career, a conscience exempt from the reproach of the interference between a young lady and her natural rights. These excellent things might be too troublesomely purchased. For Catherine herself, Mrs. Pennyman received no assistance whatever. The poor girl was apparently without suspicion of her danger. She looked at her lover with eyes of undiminished trust, and though she had less confidence in her aunt than in a young man with whom she had exchanged so many tender vows, she gave her no handle for explaining or confessing. Mrs. Pennyman, faltering and wavering, declared Catherine was very stupid put off the great scene, as she would have called it, from day to day, and wandered about, very uncomfortably, with her unexploded bomb in her hands. Morris's own scenes were very small ones just now, but even these were beyond his strength. He made his visits as brief as possible, and while he sat with his mistress, found terribly little to talk about. She was waiting for him, in vulgar parlance, to name the day, and so long as he was unprepared to be explicit on this point, it seemed a mockery to pretend to talk about matters more abstract. She had no airs and no arts. She never attempted to disguise her expectancy. She was waiting on his good pleasure, and would wait modestly and patiently. His hanging back at this supreme time might appear strange, but of course he must have good reason for it. Catherine would have made a wife of the gentle, old-fashioned pattern, regarding reasons as favours and windfalls, but no more expecting one every day than she would have expected a bouquet of camellias. During the period of her engagement, however, a young lady, even of the most slender pretensions, counts upon more bouquets than at other times and there was a want of perfume in the air at this moment, which at last excited the girl's alarm. "'Are you sick?' she asked of Morris. "'You seem so restless, and you look pale.' "'I am not at all well,' said Morris, and it occurred to him that, if he could only make her pity him enough, he might get off. "'I am afraid you are overworked. You oughtn't to work so much.' I must do that. And then he added, with a sort of calculated brutality, I don't want to owe you everything. Ah, uh, how can you say that? I am too proud, said Morris. Yes, you are too proud. Well, you must take me as I am, 
he went on. "'You can never change me.' "'I don't want to change you,' she said gently. "'I will take you as you are,' and she stood looking at him. "'You know, people talk tremendously about a man's marrying a rich girl,' Morris remarked. "'It's excessively disagreeable.' "'But I am not rich,' said Catherine. "'You are rich enough to make me talked about.' "'Of course you are talked about. It's an honour. "'It's an honour I could easily dispense with.' She was on the point of asking him whether it was not a compensation for this annoyance that the poor girl, who had the misfortune to bring it upon him, loved him so dearly and believed in him so truly. But she hesitated, thinking that this would perhaps seem an exacting speech, and while she hesitated he suddenly left her. The next time he came, however, she brought it out, and she told him again that he was too proud. He repeated that he couldn't change, and this time she felt the impulse to say, with a little effort, he might change. Sometimes he thought if he could only make a quarrel with her, it might help him. But the question was how to quarrel with a young woman who had such treasures of concession. "'I suppose you think the effort is all on your side,' he broke out. "'Don't you believe that I have my own effort to make?' "'It's all yours now,' she said. "'My effort is finished and done with.' "'Well, mine is not.' "'We must bear things together,' said Catherine. "'That's what we ought to do.' Morris attempted a natural smile. There are some things which we can't very well bear together. For instance, separation. Why do you speak of separation? Ah, you don't like it. I knew you wouldn't. Where are you going, Morris? she suddenly asked. He fixed his eye on her a moment, and for part of that moment she was afraid of it. Will you promise not to make a scene? A scene? "'Do I make scenes?' "'All women do,' said Morris, with the tone of large experience. "'I don't. Where are you going?' "'If I should say I was going away on business, should you think it very strange?' She wondered a moment, gazing at him. "'Yes. No. Not if you will take me with you.' "'Take you with me? On business? What is your business? Your business is to be with me.' "'I don't earn my living with you,' said Morris. "'Or rather,' he cried with a sudden inspiration, "'that's just what I do, or what the world says I do.' This ought, perhaps, to have been a great stroke, but it miscarried. "'Where are you going?' Catherine simply repeated. "'To New Orleans. About buying some cotton.' "'I am perfectly willing to go to New Orleans,' Catherine said. "'Do you suppose I would take you to a nest of yellow fever?' cried Morris. "'Do you suppose I would expose you at such a time as this?' "'If there is yellow fever, why should you go? "'Morris, you must not go.' "'It is to make six thousand dollars,' said Morris. "'Do you grudge me that satisfaction?' "'We have no need of six thousand dollars. "'You think too much about money.' "'You can afford to say that. This is a great chance. We heard of it last night. 
and he explained to her in what the chance consisted, and told her a long story, going over more than once several of the details, about the remarkable stroke of business which he and his partner had planned between them. But Catherine's imagination, for reasons best known to herself, absolutely refused to be fired. "'If you can go to New Orleans, I can go,' she said. "'Why shouldn't you catch yellow fever quite as easily as I?' I am every bit as strong as you, and not in the least afraid of any fever. When we were in Europe, we were in very unhealthy places. My father used to make me take some pills. I never caught anything, and I never was nervous. What will be the use of six thousand dollars if you die of a fever? When persons are going to be married, they oughtn't to think so much about business. You shouldn't think about cotton. You should think about me. You can go to New Orleans some other time. There will always be plenty of cotton. It isn't the moment to choose. We have waited too long already. She spoke more forcibly and volubly than he had ever heard her, and she held his arm in her two hands. You said you wouldn't make a scene, cried Morris. I call this a scene. It's you that are making it. I have never asked you anything before. We have waited too long already. And it was a comfort to her to think that she had hitherto asked so little. It seemed to make her right to insist the greater now. Morris bethought himself a little. Very well, then. We won't talk about it any more. I will transact my business by letter. And he began to smooth his hat as if to take leave. You won't go? And she stood looking up at him. He could not give up his idea of provoking a quarrel. It was so much the simplest way. He bent his eyes on her upturned face with the darkest frown he could achieve. You are not discreet. You mustn't bully me. But as usual, she conceded everything. No, I am not discreet. I know I am too pressing. But isn't it natural? It is only for a moment. In a moment you may do a great deal of harm. Try and be calmer the next time I come. When will you come? Do you want to make conditions? Morris asked. I will come next Saturday. Come tomorrow, Catherine begged. I want you to come tomorrow. I will be very quiet, she added, and her agitation had by this time become so great that the assurance was not unbecoming. A sudden fear had come over her. It was like the solid conjunction of a dozen disembodied doubts and her imagination at a single bound had transversed an enormous distance. All her being, for the moment, was centred in the wish to keep him in the room. Morris bent his head and kissed her forehead. "'When you are quiet, you are perfection,' he said. "'But when you are violent, you are not in character.' It was Catherine's wish that there should be no violence about her, save the beating of her heart, which she could not help. And she went on, as gently as possible. "'Will you promise to come to-morrow?' I said Saturday, Morris answered, smiling. He tried a frown at one moment, a smile at another. He was at his wit's end. Yes, Saturday, too, she answered, trying to smile. But to-morrow first. He was going to the door, and she went with him quickly. She leaned her shoulder against it. It seemed to her that she would do anything to keep him. "'If I am prevented from coming to-morrow, you will say I have deceived you,' he said. "'How can you be prevented? You can come, if you will.' 
I am a busy man. I am not a dangler,' cried Morris sternly. His voice was so hard and unnatural that with a helpless look at him she turned away, and then he quickly laid his hand on the doorknob. He felt as if he were absolutely running away from her, but at an instant she was close to him again and murmuring in a tone none the less penetrating for being low. "'Morris, are you going to leave me?' "'Yes, for a while. For how long?' till you are reasonable again. I shall never be reasonable in that way. And she tried to keep him longer. It was almost a struggle. Think of what I've done, she broke out. Morris, I have given up everything. You shall have everything back. You wouldn't say that if you didn't mean something. What is it? What has happened? What have I done? What has changed you? "'I will write to you. That is better,' Morris stammered. "'Oh, you won't come back!' she cried, bursting into tears. "'Dear Catherine,' he said, "'don't believe that. I promise you that you shall see me again.' And he managed to get away and to close the door behind him. End of chapter 29 This has been a LibriVox recording of Washington Square, a novel by Henry James, Read for LibriVox by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.